Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Let me remind you as you're doing that, next week is Easter Sunday. We're going to take a break from Romans. I'm going to do a, a pure message on evangelism from the, per, uh, the point perspective of the resurrection. So um, if you have friends or family who you want to just come and hear what it means to, to know Christ and be saved by his glorious grace, please, next week will be one of those, those celebration Sundays that we'll take advantage of. Romans chapter 8. We're making our way at a snail's pace through Romans 8, and that for good reason. This has been called the, the Himalayas of the, the whole Bible, the book of Romans is, and chapter 8 has been called Mount Everest. And we are in no hurry. I keep thinking we need to get through with this, and then I think, for what else? This, is, uh, this has been so enriching. And I think this morning might pique some, some interest in some areas of your, your thinking you might not have thought about before. Let's pick it up, and I'll, uh, we're only going to look at verses 19 through 22, but let's pick up beginning in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility or vanity, Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption. Into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. You have no doubt heard and seen something day in and day out, but it's likely you've been numbed to what it really is. You see it, you hear it, you hear of it, you experience it. But unless it comes close to you and close by you, it's, it's easy to tune it out. Let me, let me uh, give you some, some thoughts about what it sounds like and maybe what it looks like. The reverberations of an earthquake. Um, my wife and I uh, were, uh, we weren't married at the time, but we went through the 94 Northridge earthquake. I lived in Northridge at the time. I will never forget the power of that earthquake. The things were falling off the, uh, the wall on me, uh, pictures, and I was convinced that the house was falling down and that the Lord was coming back. And in the panic of 4.30 in the morning, I wanted to, I screamed out, Lord, I'm here, thinking that he might not be able to find me under everything. <laughs> The rising waters of floods, the pounding wind of a hurricane, the disastrous effects of tornadoes, the devastation of a tsunami, the parched news of a drought, the explosions of volcanoes, the relentless invasion of weeds. Did I say relentless? The relentless Invasion of weeds, the irritation of bugs and pests, the news of a vicious attack of an animal on a person, the aches and pains of the flu, the, nu- the nuisance of, of a common cold, the challenges of making a living, the pain associated with childbirth, and the fact that everybody and everything that's alive 
eventually dies. If you haven't figured it out yet, those are the sounds and the sights of the creation sighing and what this text says, groaning. We can't help but take notice of such things. Just for a moment, hold your finger there and turn back to the book of Ecclesiastes. We've been studying Ecclesiastes in our evening service, but this is important to set in our mind because I really believe that Paul is echoing back to two primary passages, one in Genesis and one in Ecclesiastes as he frames the thinking that he's going to give us here in Romans chapter 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, that's Solomon. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Then he asks the question, what advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Then he begins to explain the cycle of nature. There's seasons that come. There's rain that comes. There's drought that comes. There's a time for this and a time for that, Ecclesiastes 3 says. In other words, there's this endless cycle of nature happening. That's not always pleasant. And we can never avoid it. This idea of vanity is an interesting word. It's the word, the Hebrew word habel. It means, it means temporal. It's, it's like steam. We keep saying it's, it's like steam off a cup of coffee. It's there for a moment and it's gone. It's transitory. It's temporal. It doesn't last. That's the concept that Paul is going to overlay when we consider and look at our theology of creation. Now, I hope you understand that everyone has a theology of the world. Everyone has a theology of creation. What do you think about the natural world, the universe, the physical matter that God has has allowed and left us to live in? What is your theology about that? How did it get the way it is? Where is it going to go in, in the end? What's your theology of creation? This passage allows us to look carefully into that. Paul looks at the future glory of people. And how the future glory of people is connected to the future glory and renewal of the planet, of the universe. Now, before we get into this passage, I need to kind of back up and we need to be um, kind of literary for a moment. Um, Literary prose and poetry especially have lots of mechanisms that, that it uses to communicate. One of the most profound is that of personification. In other words, you, you take an inanimate object and you personify it and speak of it as if it is animate, as if it has emotions or feelings or judgments. It's only poetic. It's not real. That's what's happening here. Paul is going to assert to the creation feelings and longings and sounds and groanings and emotions. But let's be clear that that's just a literary device. You can hug trees all you want. They will not hug you back. There's not an emotive nature in the creation, but it does have consequences that are tied to people that I I think you'll find interesting in a moment. Let's open this passage up. We're gonna look at these verses, verses 19 to 22, and find three considerations for thinking rightly about creation. Three considerations for thinking rightly about creation. 
Let me just say from the beginning, it is difficult to find people who think biblically about the creation. Certainly the pundits, certainly the people on the, the television newscast don't think rightly about creation. It's also difficult to find Christians who can think biblically about the world, about the universe, about the, the atoms that are, that are in, in, in matter and about the massive galaxies that are beyond our telescopes. And yet God's word has a lot to say about how we think about the universe. This passage is one of the clearest, most succinct um, uh, inputs into what we would think in forming a theology of creation. Three considerations for thinking rightly about creation. Number one, the expectation of creation. The expectation. This says that creation has an expectation. Again, this is personification. He's just using this as a literary device. He says, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Very interesting. Now, in order to understand verse 19, we have to go back to verse 18. I don't know if you remember from our last study, we said verse 18 was the last part of, of that paragraph and the beginning part of the next paragraph. It has a hinge purpose. Let's go back and grab it. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So he's looking at the world, the difficulty we have with, with relationships, with, with sickness, with disease, with, with uh, the planet itself. And he says, the suffering that we have in this world has to be considered in reference to and in comparison to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. To heaven, to the new heavens, the new earth, the great day when there will be no more tears and God will wipe them all dry. He says, compare that. The reason we go back there is the first word in verse 19 is for. In fact, if you look at, at just the beginning of the verses in, in chapter 8, there are so many. The Greek word is gar. For, 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 for. They're just staccato, laid out like tiles, arguments that he's making. Based on the fact that the glory of God will be revealed to us one day in the future, that this is not all that we have to expect from our, from our experiences, the suffering of this world. There's something better uh, waiting us in heaven. For, then he shifts gear to the creation. And for the next few verses, he talks about the world. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly. Hear how he personified the creation? It's anxiously longing. It's waiting eagerly. This provides immeasurable encouragement that the sufferings we experience that he discusses in verse 18 in this life will become an ancient memory when we experience the glory that is coming in the end with ourselves and with the universe. He uses this personification of the creation having emotions and feelings and says, let's think of it from the world's perspective. It's said to be anxiously longing. These verses are full, chock full of allusions back to Genesis chapter 3. It's the first image of, uh, uh, of a, first is the image here of anxiety, anticipation of like waiting for a child, which he's going to come back explicitly and look at in verse 22. And, and this goes back to the curse that God gave in humanity, especially with women, on the pain of childbirth. He says explicitly in verse 22, whole creation groans, groans and, and suffers the pains of childbirth. He's talking about anxiously waiting. Something is coming. There's something that is at the end of this pain. 
in the literal sense at the end of the sufferings of this world mentioned in verse 18. Now I want to show you something that's very interesting. When you trace through the argument, Paul continues to associate our sin with creation's destruction. Humanity's sin, Adam and Eve's sin. And our redemption and glory in heaven with the new heaven and the new earth. It's inextricably linked to humanity. He says it up here, and this is, this is incredible. He says, the creation is waiting for the revelation of Christians, of sons of God. We already studied in previous, the previous paragraph that the sons of God, how do we become sons of God? We were adopted by God. He says the whole world, the whole creation, the universe can't wait until people are restored in glory. Why? Because God's original intent for man, we'll see this in a minute in Genesis, was to rule and reign over the earth. And the earth functions best under his rulership. Paul told the Colossians that our minds should be set on the things above in Colossians 3. You've died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Coming of Jesus, the great glorification of the Son of God, also is attended by our glorification. Now, I want you to take your Bibles and turn back to Genesis. We need to look at some, do, do some review here. Turn back to Genesis chapter 1. I want you to see where the creation came from and how it got to where it is now. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to pick it up in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. An obvious allusion to the Trinity. According to our likeness. And let them, what's it say? Rule. Let them, man, mankind, let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth. All the earth. Over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, exercise dominion over it. You know what this is the language of? Be the king over it. It's the same language. Put it in subjection to you. Rule over the earth. He gave that rulership to humanity, to Adam in the very beginning. Then he says to rule over the fish of the sea, which... I obviously can experience the, the curse of that because I'm a really good fisherman. I'm just not a good catcher. Over the, the birds in, in the sky, I'm not very good at quail and dove and pheasant hunting. Over every living thing that moves on the ground. Listen, every living thing that moves on the ground is to be under the rulership of man. Then God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding its seed. It shall be food for you. Notice in the Hebrew it says, it shall be food for you 
ex- except for mushrooms. And I just, just want to give you the, the exact Hebrew on that. Um, it shall be food for you. And to every beast on the earth, to every bird of the sky, to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. I'm feeding the animals too. They were all vegetarians in the beginning. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Don't miss what's going on here. God created the world and on the sixth day, he created, on the last day, he created the, of his creative works, the, the pinnacle, he creates man and tells the man, rule over the earth. It is to be in subjection to you. You are the top of the pyramid. You are King Adam and Queen Eve at the very beginning. This is yours to subdue, exercise dominion. It's the language of a king. Be the ruler of the planet. And obviously, by implication, all of your offspring as well. And yet, is man really the ruler of the planet? Oh, there's some dimensions that we exercise authority, exercise dominion over the planet, over the universe. That's undisputed. However, are there areas where we are out of control? Just saw a documentary recently of a man who tried to take a, a, a kayak from Australia to New Zealand and was lost. He couldn't exercise dominion over the waves. Do we have what God intended us to have as rulership over the planet? This is what's interesting. God has designed the creation that it can't wait until man can subdue and rule over it again. That's what verse 19 says back in Romans. It eagerly awaits the revealing of the sons of God because then it will find and have its purpose. It expects that. So the first consideration on the thinking, uh, thinking rightly about creation is the expectation of creation. It expects to be ruled and reigned over by humanity. Number two, the slavery of creation. We have to understand this if we're going to build a right theology to, of creation. The slavery of creation. Verse 20. For the creation was subjected, very interesting word, put under submission to. See that word futility? That's the word that the Septuagint, that the Greek version of the Old Testament uses for the word vanity in Ecclesiastes. The creation was subjected to vanity, temporality, steam off a cup of coffee. Then it says something very interesting. Not willingly, but uh, because of him who subjected it. Not willingly. Again, he he almost acts like the, the creation has a will and a way and a decision to make. He says the creation was subjected to vanity, to futility, to an endless cycle, to corruption, to degradation. This verse begs us to ask a question though. Who is him says that it was, this happened, this subjection to futility of the creation happened because of him who subjected it. There's a lot of, of ink been spilt on dissecting who is the him. Here's some options. It was Adam. Adam did this. And that's, that's a decent uh, thought until we get into Genesis and see that it wasn't Adam who cursed the creation. 
Some say it should have been her because it was really Eve who did it. And uh, Paul got his pronouns messed up. No, Paul didn't get his pronouns messed up. We have to know that the fallen condition of creation is not the same as the fallen state of man. This is what I mean. Humanity is in a fallen condition because of sin and disobedience to God. But the creation, the created world, is a victim of man's sin. It's traced back to Eden. Old uh, commentator Joseph Fitzmaier writes this, quote, The world created for humanity and the service of it was drawn into Adam's ruin, the blessing given to him, namely the fertility of the soil, the abundance of the trees, the brilliance of the stars, the friendliness of animals, the limitation of insects. All of those were lost because Eve gave Adam, humanity, to eat the forbidden fruit. Paul is tributary to such Jewish thinking. He realizes that through Adam come not only sin and death, Romans 5, but bondage to decay and slavery of corruption, which will affect all material creation, even apart from humanity. What he's saying there is exactly what this passage talks about, that we are... We're slaves to corruption in this world. The world has the law of thermodynamics, which is things are not building up, but winding toward the wrong direction. We're, we're stuck here, but we have to ask why. How, how did it get like this? How, how did we get a broken world, a broken planet? Now, in order to understand this, now you have to go back one more time to Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. Because this is obviously in mind when Paul is writing Romans chapter 8. Genesis 3, let's pick it up here in verse 17. Adam and Eve have partaken of the fruit. They have obviously disobeyed God. They have tried to hide from God. They've tried to um, cover their shame with fig leaves. God will eventually cover their shame with Skins of animals, indicating a sacrifice. Then, verse 17, Then to Adam God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. So, now let's be English grammarians for a second. Is Adam the agent of the cursing or is Adam the reason for the cursing? There's, there's two, different, two different answers. The agent means he's the one who cursed. The reason means it was done because of him. This text clearly says God cursed the creation because of Adam's sin. Cursed is the ground because of you. And then we get some consequences. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It's going to be tough to make a living. Both thorns and thistles, it shall grow. Ever notice these last two words? For you. God broke the planet to remind us of why the planet is broken. And to remind us that there will be a day where we'll have a new heavens and a new earth. And it, and it won't be broken. Now, the earth isn't broken uh, 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 beyond use, 
but it is broken. You eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. God subjected the creation to slavery to corruption. Look at the next passage back in, in, verse, in um, Romans 8, verse 21. In hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its corruption. It's slavish, slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Hear that again? He talks about the coming renewal of the planet and of the universe and says that's directly associated with the glorification of people. You see it? It's tied directly to it. Why? Because then it can be truly ruled over and enjoyed by the ones that God intended. God promised that there would be a future glory even back in the Old, Old Testament. Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth and the former things will not be remembered or even come to mind. I, there will be a day when there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Isaiah 66, 22. For just as the new heavens and new earth which I will make endure before me. He's going to do that one day and it will be a different kind of earth. You've read Isaiah. You've read Ezekiel. You've read Jeremiah, haven't you? Lions will nap with lambs. Children will play with cobras. In other words, there's going to be this relationship within the creation where there's no enmity. They don't eat each other. I was having a discussion with one of my sons just this weekend about the fact that, Dad, will there be meat in heaven? And the answer to that is probably no. And the only thing that gives me hope is there will be something better than filet or than salmon or... But just think about it. I mean, just really, honestly, imagine a world. Imagine a creation where there's no predators. Where Isaiah says, children play with serpents. I mean, they're, they're, there's no more, I don't know what it's called, snakeophobia, whatever it is. There's no more, it, it, the creation is intended to be enjoyed. You want to ride an elephant? Probably have a chance. Want to ride a crocodile? You go ahead. <laughs> notice, though, notice, notice that the redemption and final glory of the creation is over and over again in this passage put in the context of the children of God being revealed. That's the purpose. This planet was intended to be ruled over and enjoyed by God's people as a blessing from God. Now, a little aside to that, as we're studying the book of Ecclesiastes, you're going to see when we get in the latter chapters that this is, we can still enjoy parts of the broken world. In fact, if anybody's going to enjoy parts of the broken world, it ought to be a Christian who can give God glory for those things. I was driving in this morning and looking at the sunrise. It was just gorgeous. I mean, it was, it literally was pink and purple and orange and it matched. Pink and purple and orange. And it was just beautiful. I remember living in L.A., 
And we used to have gorgeous sunsets. And I used to love them until a friend of mine said, you know why L.A. has such great sunsets, don't you? And I said, why? Because there's so much pollution in the air. There's so many particulates that it reflects and reflects reflects the light. And Okay, well, I'm enjoying the the brokenness of the world. I, uh, I have a friend who is in glory now, who is an astrophysicist, Bill uh, Zimmer was his name. He used to talk about, he was just an incurably curious studier and student of the creation. And he had a fascination with the Grand Canyon. And I remember him saying, we were going to Grand Canyon and he couldn't go. He said, well, I said, we're, we're gonna look forward to enjoying God's creation. He says, oh, no, no, no. That's God's destruction. Imagine what God's new creation will look like. That's probably the result of the flood. He, and all this, and that's just, that's beautiful destruction. Imagine the create. And I was like, oh, wow, that, it will be nice. We still can enjoy nuances of this planet. If anybody is going to enjoy a hot Krispy Kreme donut, it ought to be a Christian who can thank God for a hot Krispy Kreme donut, right? <laughs> the world is broken, but it's not unenjoyable. It still has a slavery of creation. Things die, people die, animals die. The first time I ever really knew this, I, I, I distinctly remember it, is when my, my, our black Labrador retriever, our, the first dog I ever had uh, as a young boy, it died. And I just remember crying out, why? 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 I mean, and my parents were so wise to say, this is, this is life in a broken world. Everything dies. Which leads us to number three, the curse. The curse of creation. We saw that God cursed the earth because of Adam. Now let's look more specifically into that. We know that the whole creation, verse 22, groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. The reason we're calling this the curse is he goes back to the illusion of the illustration of childbirth and, 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 and the pain associated with that being under the curse. And the whole creation groans and suffers. Notice this. There are three groanings in this passage. The creation groans here in verse 22. In our next study, believers groan in verse 23, and the Holy Spirit groans in verse 26. Whenever you see a word that's used multiple times in a small context, you know that the Holy Spirit is making a significant point. What is going on here with this groaning? Well, let me give you some dictionary um, data for this word groaning. It's a really interesting word. A groan is an audible but not necessarily, not necessarily verbal. In other words, it's a sound, but it's not words. Audible, but not necessarily verbal expression of anguish due to physical, emotional, or spiritual pain. These groanings flow from a situation that is painful, unsatisfying, sorrowful. It's a cry for deliverance from a torturing experience. You understand what this word groan means if you've lost a loved one. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sighing, there's a weeping, there's a groan that, that communicates heart but is absent of 
actual words. There's an old commentator that I love to read named Godet. He quotes an even older commentator named Schelling who said this. This is incredible. Speaking of this groaning, he says, Nature, with its melancholy charm, resembles a bride who, at the very moment when she was fully attired for her marriage, saw the bridegroom die. She still stands with her fresh bridal crown and bridal dress, but her eyes are full of tears. That's capturing what this word groaning means. Paul says the creation longs, eagerly waits, moans and groans for redemption to be made whole again. Just so this made whole, no, so that it can be ruled and reigned upon by the children of God. Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Isn't that interesting? That John's vision, he understands that the new Jerusalem is like the... The new creation is like a bride to humanity. It's the same imagery as that old commentator. Now, in order to wrap this together, would you turn over just very briefly to 2 Peter chapter 3? 2 Peter 3. Peter says... 2 Peter 3, verse 10. <clears throat> but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. There's gonna be a time when God starts this universe over. He pushes reset. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, here's the question. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Here's the deal. If you don't know Christ today, the whole purpose of looking at the creation, Peter says, is to say, see that this thing is headed for destruction. God himself is going to destroy it. There's going to be an end to all times. All times. There will be a finishing line for the universe. Are you ready to meet the judge who is executing that judgment even on the planet? What sort of people ought you to be? Do you know Christ? Do you know him as Savior? Is he your Lord? Has he paid for your sins by your faith engaging that? Looking for the hastening and the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth. In which, the, in which righteousness dwells. Won't that be a great day? I love the characteristic of the new heavens and the new earth. Righteousness is the atmosphere. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. He's coming. Are you ready, Peter is saying. 
and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. What a plea. Since the end of all things is not today, consider that the patience of God to give you an opportunity to respond to the gospel. What a gracious God. I have to say, go to this next part. Just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote you, probably talking about Romans, <laughs> also in his letters, speaking in them these things, in which some things are hard to understand. I'm so glad Peter said that Paul was hard to understand sometimes. It gives me hope. The untaught, unable, or unstable distort as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity, Peter says, amen. So what do we do with all this? Let me back up and just give you some final thoughts about the creation that I think need to be said in light of this passage. Just a few final thoughts. First of all, the fate of this planet is not in the hands of men. The fate of this planet is not under the control or in the hands of men. The world will not be ended by global warming. I'm sorry, did I say that? Um, uh, climate change. <laughs> I've never had anybody applaud anything I ever said except that. The world's not going to end because of climate change or global warming. It's not going to change because or end because of nuclear war. I heard this last week. It's not going to have problems because we're creating too much garbage. Have you ever flown and seen how much space there is to put garbage if we wanted to? <laughs> Second thought. We should give care to the planet as we can. Uh, when we're, when we're uh, I mean, we should, we should, uh, um, you know, pluck out the weeds and pull the weeds and, 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 and do our landscaping and cut our grass and, and, and take care of our gardens and, and pick up litter. That, that's a great thing to do. That's just exercising a little bit of the shadow of what God gave Adam to do, which was to care for the, the garden. I, it's okay, care for the planet. Just don't think that, that you can save it from God who in the end is going to dispose of it. Here's a thought. To God, this universe is disposable. Thirdly, environmentalism is not in any way connected with the great commission of the gospel. And the reason I say that is so many Christians are turning their, their mandate into the fact that they have to do something about the planet rather than save souls from the destruction of the planet Creation will one day be restored by the Lord. We can't save it and we can't destroy it. So, step on the grass, drill for oil, shoot a deer, and tell people the gospel. Let's pray. Father, give our theological moorings anchors in your word as we think about the creation. Guard us from thinking too highly of it and guard us from thinking too lowly of it. What a thought that it longs
for the revelation of the sons of God, those you've adopted through Christ, who will one day rule and reign over it and its full purpose will be employed and enjoyed. This passage and this topic brings us to the understanding of the great day when you will draw all things to a close. You will dispose of this heavens and earth and create a new heavens and a new earth. In that, Lord, please, please convict sinners who are on the wrong side of your wrath to turn their hearts to Jesus, to receive and believe the good news of the gospel, that their souls are saved by a loving and gracious Savior. Direct our hearts and attention to the way we have theological musings on the news and conversations. Control all of that by our understanding of Scripture. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word that is so clear. In Jesus' name. Amen.